A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's Sportsbook Club on TalkSport 2 with William Hill. This show is where we take a look at the world of sportsbooks. And on this show, we're focusing on last year's William Hill Sportsbook of the Year, Lauren Fleshman's Good for a Girl, My Life Running in a Man's World. Having a book about women's sports written by a woman, um, we're still in the beginning stages of women really telling their own stories and people picking them up and reading them and taking them seriously. So it feels very cool to be part to have that recognition. It's a book that's going to slap you around the face repeatedly in a very good way. We're going to get into that. And it's not just books of the present. We've got books of the past as well. We'll focus on one written by the great Bobby Moore back in the 60s. I used to come over from school, just dump the books, go straight, get a ball, go straight out in the road and start playing football or walk over to the park and play football. Only 12 inches high, solid gold, and it means England are the world champions. It's the Sports Book Club on TalkSport 2 with William Hill. I'm Adrian Durham, and with me for this one, it is Alison Rudd from The Times. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you for having me. Writer, novelist... Everything. Oh, everything. Ex-footballer. Ex-football. Current tennis player. Football fan. Football fan. Football genius. Uh, <laughs> and we have uh, Neil Foggy Foggin who's with us from William Hill as well. We are allowed to call you Foggy. We have established this, haven't we? Yes, well, you could call me Foggy. It sounds very strange being called Neil. Okay. I feel like I'm in trouble. <laughs> well, if you're in trouble, I'll call you Neil. Uh, <laughs> other than that, it's going to be Foggy. So let's start with you, because uh, obviously we have the, the William Hill Sportsbook of the Year Awards, and uh, we need to know a little bit more about that, first of all. first, And the big question for me is, what actually makes a, a great sports book because some books that I've thought were great have not been on the, the long list even. So what is it that uh, makes a sports book great in your opinion? Um, I think every year when we start this, I'm always looking for that book which you could give to anybody and that's the magic for me. It's, it's giving a book to somebody who has no interest in sport and saying, look, you like reading, give this a read because you're going to learn something, it's going to change change your perception of stuff, or I think it's right for you. And that's what I think the ideal goal, I think we always argue and discuss this, that I think sometimes some people feel that it's more that if you're a sports fan, anybody can read this book, and that's what they're aiming for. But for me, the perfect book is anybody can read it. And I think, Alison, and I've got a bazillion books, uh, most of them are sports books, mm-hmm. But actually, I can recall ones that have stood out. When I've been reading them, it's rare I come across what I, what might be considered a bad sports book. I basically love reading them all. But actually, the ones that really stand out, it's fairly obvious early on for me which ones are... These are these are ones that I think are brilliant, that, that are really going to register with me and stay with me for a long time. Do you feel the same? Yeah, I've done a lot of... I, I chair the... Um... William Hill Sports Book of the Year, and before that, I was a judge on it for quite a long time. 
And I've also judged other literary awards. So my I bet I have more books in my house than you do, to be quite honest. <laughs> oh, let's but, have a competition, but, shall we? <laughs> but, but, for one, but for some, you, you, the judges are asked to read like a ridiculous... There is some pre-reading for the William Hill, which I'm very grateful, Foggy. But for some awards, you are li- literally sent a huge crate, uh, the Costa novel, that that's you sent a crate, but no one else gets your books... So if you say no to a book, there's no backup for someone else. So you have that weight of responsibility, but also the knowledge you have a life to lead and a job to do. And can you literally read 80 books or whatever it is? So so what I learned then, and I apply um, a little to the Sports Book of the Year, is you can tell within the first 50 pages if something is well-written. Can this person write? Or... Has the sports person got a good ghostwriter on board that's able to capture their voice but also add a bit of common sense writing to it? Um, you can learn that in the first 50 pages. And you can also you can also work out the relationship the author has with their sport and whether it's a lazy book. Oh, I'm so famous. I can just write about what I had for tea when I was six and how much my dad loved me and and no that won't do anymore so you can learn quite quickly whether a book is literally worth throwing over your shoulder or not so I agree with you completely that you can tell quite quickly the intent of a book whether it's going to grab you and let's not forget when you're talking about sports books what's the thing we love about sport we love its unpredictability and the narratives I mean things happen that you would not Maidstone United that you would not expect to happen that puts the onus on a book to cap somehow capture that because most books tell you things you if you're a fan of the, the sports star or the sport you probably have an inkling what happens the highs and the lows can you make those just as dramatic and make you gasp for breath as when they happened in real life or, uh, to gr- just take you into it from a different perspective from the person the protagonist the person who was there and still make your heart race and that's that to me is what what makes a good sports book is that the sport's great. Does it need a sports book? Well, it's up to the sports book to prove that it does. A very good point. I think as well I'm conscious that maybe a book that I don't like, a lot of work and effort and heart has gone into that book. It might not be a good read or it might not be to my taste individually, but I'm also conscious that you need to respect all the time that an amount of work has gone into that, you know, heart and soul has gone into that from the author, hard work from a ghostwriter, if there is a ghostwriter with it as well. So I want to respect all books. I know that might sound really cheesy and corny, but I want to. And yes, some are better than others, but we should respect the fact that people are are basically spilling their hearts onto pages for us to devour. And I think that's quite important as well. Well, yeah, but uh, there are different levels of intent there, which I've said. I mean, not not all books, some of them are churned out to meet Christmas deadline. Oh, well, that was exciting. Let's make sure we have a book about that in time for Christmas. Well, fine. Don't expect to win an award for it. I'm still being naive with this, aren't I? I I live in this ideal world where everybody's got their story and we should respect it, but you're going to bring reality to my world of books. I can can tell that. That's what's going to make this so good. And if there's a major tournament, you get a lot of... Like last... um, You get a lot of books for the World Cup. Mm. This year, you're going to see... Hopefully, we'll see a few Olympic books because they're they're trying to sell them for those events. Do you think there's a uh, responsibility um, 
for sports books to address social issues? Is that really important in in this era, Neil? I think we've got to change people's perception. Otherwise, things are not going to move on. And I think that's the beauty of every book I go in to read. I want it to. I want to learn something, or if not learn something, I want it to question what I thought, my thought process. And if it makes me change or makes other people change, that's what we should be doing. It's what it's one factor. I don't think it's the factor. The beauty of this year's debate to determine what would be the sports book of the year was that you had some books that weren't trying to shine a light on anything very much at all and some that really, really, really were. Both, in my opinion, are valid, valid ways of writing. You'd, I, if next year's sports book of the year didn't raise any important issues at all, that, that would be fine with me as long as it was beautifully constructed and made me feel something. So about the Sportsbook of the Year award, and we're going to talk about the winner from last year uh, later on in this particular show. What is it that gets on to that long list, then the short list for you, Foggy? As Alison said, it's the quality of the writing. Is it something we've learned? And you never know. Last year we had 150 books which we went through. It's a two-hour, three-hour process to get that long list. What we do as the year goes on, um, myself, Matt Williams and Nancy Foster sit down at the reading panel and every four or five weeks we're having a book review and we're working out what that maybe pile is for when we get to the end of the process that 150 books is down to 40, 50 books. Then you're having a three hour debate of I want this one on that, no I want that one on and it's and it's it's hard. It's every year is different. Every year has been different, and that's what I think is great. I've been doing it for four years, which is I'm a baby compared to everyone else on the the panel and the judges. But it's it's good. It keeps you interested every year. But there is you never know what's going to be on that long list. And actually, when we look at the shortlist from last year, the 2023 shortlist, which we've got with us at the moment, I, I would say, and, and I may be disrespectful here to the layman of, of a certain age, um, but Ronnie O'Sullivan's Unbreakable is on that uh, shortlist from the William Hill Sportsbook of the Year last year. And uh, I would say possibly Sharon Davis to sports fans of a certain age. But other than that, I think that in terms of names that stand out, oh, yes, I recognise that name, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Ronnie O'Sullivan will be the only one there. You're thinking, yes, definitely, I've I've heard of Ronnie O'Sullivan. The rest, you've you've got to be curious to go there, and that's uh, it's one of the reasons why I think the the William Hill Sportsbook of the Year award is vital because it actually brings these books that have important things to say and and are moments in history as well, most of them, to the forefront to most people's consciousness, without doubt. And I think. You look at the list, and Ronnie's not on that list because it's Ronnie O'Sullivan. Ronnie's on that list because his book deserves to be on the list, as so does Sam Peter's book, etc. We don't look at it, when we're looking at it, we don't look at it at the name and go, they have to be on the long list, they have to be on the short list. You're just looking at that book and think, is it worthy of being on the list, yes or no? And then I hand it over to Alison and the judges and let them decide the short list. Well, yeah, the the, the judges, they, they can, the judges can have an input on, on what goes on the long list as well, but to keep it simple the judges make sure they read the long list intently and then they they give their sort of marks marks for each book and then you collate it and come up with a, a short list and I can tell you that Ronnie O'Sullivan is not on was not on that list because they wanted a star name on the list uh, one of the judges actually the reason that judge gave it such high marks was 
it told her things that might give away whatever, but it gave her uh, uh, insight into snooker she had no idea about. Just she didn't realise snooker operated that way. She didn't realise the intensity of the sport. She didn't realise what he'd gone through. So it, it taught her stuff about a sport she rarely watches, but it made a sport fascinating to her. I don't think he was particularly trying to reach someone who isn't a snooker fan, but he he's, he he knows the universal appeal of the human condition that. If you mix certain things together, like being very good at one thing and what it takes to be good at that thing and fame and your background and how you're perceived and how every word you say is written up in the press, that that, that takes a toll and it's worth exploring and letting people know what's going on behind the tick, tick, tick of a toolkit. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, it, listen, unearthing things, bringing things to the fore, things that we need to know about, things that could change sports and change the world is exactly what the William Hill Sportsbook of the Year winner, Good for a Girl, is about. We're going to focus on that one next. This is the Sports Book Club on TalkSport 2 with William Hill. Last year's winner of the Sportsbook of the Year was Good for a Girl, My Life Running in a Man's World by Lauren Fleshman. My name is Lauren Fleshman, and I'm the author of Good for a Girl, My Life Running in a Man's World. I feel the earth move under my feet. My story is a personal memoir about my journey through sport as a youth, a collegiate, and a professional runner for the United States of America. But I'm using that story as a way to explore the sports systems and institutions that have grown around women and girls, especially over the last 50 years. I think it should be compulsory reading from anybody, training, coaching, working in women's sport. I think Lauren Fleshman's book, I learned so much about female experience in elite level sport. And I, you know, I, th- I thought I knew a lot of stuff, but I, I find it a genuinely illuminating experience. Reading. There are conversations that get closed down. People just think, It's easier not to write that. My mind has been illuminated. Look at me. Study me. Understand me. I'm not a small pink version of a man. Don't give me small pink versions of a man's running shoe. I'm Lauren Fleshman. I'm a runner and I'm a woman. I would love to just see the bar be raised for what we expect from people that work with women and girls in coaching. Anyone coaching female-bodied people, currently there's no mandatory requirements that there's an understanding of how those bodies are different and how to help them thrive. It's all just optional. People can learn it or not. But as my book shows, by not knowing these things, we inadvertently, most of the time it's not on purpose, cause a lot of harm. Yeah, I was blown away by the book just because I consider that being involved in women's sport, I have some understanding of these areas and I felt like she gave a different and deeper lens onto it and around the impact of the female performance curve over puberty and into adulthood. It's not for everyone, it's not going to land for every single reader, but when it lands, like I said, it shifts something and that kind of shift is so hard to make in stuck ways of cultural thinking. For a man to be able to hear the day-by-day experiential happenings and occurrings and thoughts and feelings, I've been educated. And I think it would just be so exciting if it was me. I would feel like it would elevate the book even more and people would be more likely to read it and be more likely to change more lives. 
And indeed it was her. Uh, some of the voices you heard there, as well as Lauren Fleshman, the former Burnley defender Clark Carlisle, businesswoman and broadcaster Dame Heather Rabatz, the Welsh comedian Ellis James, author and journalist Mark Lawson as well. And uh, Lauren Fleshman's book, uh, I said to you earlier, earlier, Foggy, didn't I, that uh, it really smacks you in the chops from a very early point in the story. What she said there is correct. She wants to take you onto the track. She wants to take you into the room where her father's talking to her, saying some extraordinary things as she's growing up. And it absolutely does that. The book starts on the running track, which I feel is so appropriate. But there's an early quote from the book I want to read to both of you. And it, for me, when I read the book, this quote from the book just instantly meant I was holding attention, it was holding my attention, and I was never going to stray from this book. This one really got a hold of me. The quote is this, The sports environments we fought so hard to have access to were built by men, for men, and boys. Our definition of gender equality has been getting what men have and the way they have it, and it's backfiring. We fold and smash women and girls into a male-based infrastructure and then scratch our heads when the same friction points show up again and again, so for all those who are in a tired old way of thinking of like, yeah, let's just incorporate the girls and let's treat them equally. No, there's a whole new world of thinking, certainly for me, um, Foggy, that Lauren Fleshman opened up just with that quote alone. You've just pinched that quote for me. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I've, gone through, I've gone through the book. Um, it was a while ago I read this and I read it again yesterday before we did this and... I, it's just, it's a brilliant book because it's a roller coaster of emotions. And she just, the way she writes, it just, it brings all these visuals into your head. And you also sit there in disgust that you didn't realise what she was saying happens or you're just ignorant to the fact that it happens. And I think it's very powerful and it's been a pleasure to read it again. And that quote... And I think there's another bit at the very beginning when she's talking about watching girls um, run and that she'd gone and got a bag and she puffed it up like a cushion to relax and watch the next generation. And I think there was another part, and it, this has stuck with me, this, was when she accepted the award, she came onto stage and she talked about her daughter being six years old and that she was hoping that in, I think she said 20 years' time, when her daughter was in the mid-20s, that... She would look at this book and go, what the hell was happening? And it doesn't... It, we've completely moved on. And I think that just stuck with me. And I think it stuck with a few people in the room. And it's just... It's a great book. We had one a few years ago, Michael Holding, which, again, that had a similar effect on changing my opinion and, and educating me. And this book has done the same. And I think, Alison, there's some... The conversations she has with, with her dad, who at times is incredibly supportive, and then at other times says things to her as she's growing up that he probably doesn't even realise could have a, a detrimental impact, certainly you know, massive impact on her thought processes growing up. Things like uh, when she... I think she dives into some water from a cliff rock or something, and she's the only girl that does it. And as she her head comes up above the water, he says, "Look at the balls on my girl," or something. Which is when you think we all say ballsy and all of that, but it's a very masculine thing. And and just highlighting the words that we use, uh, and the words her dad used to her, and how how am I meant to take that? Because she was always being compared to boys, and she was always told as a youngster, "You can be whatever you want to be." And yet, when it came to puberty, 
she realised that the boys were growing faster and stronger and that was the natural course of things. So there was a big confusion in her head. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like, I don't know, several books in one this. It, it, I think it would have been a really good book if it hadn't even explored the biological differences between men and women and how the system largely ignores the fact to the detriment of, of female athletes because her relationship with her father is um, the relationship that lots of successful or want to be successful athletes have with their a, a parent behind most athletes there is a pushy parent or a dysfunctional parent or something that pushes that person more than a, the average per, person would be pushed so her father was an alcoholic and had um, mood swings that meant the household was they were constantly walking on eggshells because they didn't know if they were going to see jolly dad today or aggressive horrible dad today and there are there are plenty of households like that where there's a, a, pe- a parent who's got problems with their mental health or addiction related where the child has to find a way to please the parent. They, the ch- children internalise everything and assume it's all their fault. So if you've got a parent who's got violent mood swings, you think you can help the family if you succeed. If you succeed, maybe they'll be happy. And that sort of happened to her. Her dad gave her love and praise when she won races and that's a bad way to parent. You should you should give lots of love and praise when you're not winning things you shouldn't be winning. So in, just that dynamic in itself was fascinating and I think all too common when it comes to people who overachieve. Why are they doing it? What's their motivation? Often it's the parental relationship. But yes, you're absolutely right. When he did express his pride in her, it, it seemed to be always that she was, you know, better than the boys, as, as though that's all that really mattered and, and, and that is so unsustainable. She had the double whammy of wanting to please a parent, wanting the family to be able to get along if she won things that made her dad happy and made, the hap- made for a happy household but also she was being pushed in a direction not only by the system but by her father as well which made it um, doubly difficult for her to navigate a path through it uh, which she sometimes failed to do correctly but at least she's been prepared to tell us how she failed. It has that narrative arc that you'd get in a in a novel almost because early in the book she she spots all the women who are making mistakes, all the young women who aren't eating. I every time she focuses on watching an athlete pushing some lettuce around a plate. That really got to me because they're not eating properly. If you're in, if you if you're running you need to eat well, right? They're not eating properly because they're trying to make their biology st- to fight against their natural biology to, to maintain a shape that's good for running. But the idea that even eating lettuce is something you don't want to do. I mean, eating lettuce to me is like awful, but to, to be pushing it around your plate and to be scared to eat the actual lettuce and, oh, God forbid, you put dressing on your lettuce. I, that I, I mean, every, I mean she, she did that, that sort of scene a lot in the book. Because, but early on, she's watching these fellow athletes do this and she's thinking, I'm not going to be like that as I ate my chocolate muffin. I'm going to be able to be healthy and I'm going to try and set an example my fellow young athletes that you can eat you know a bacon muffin and go out and 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 compete but then she falls into the the traps that she knew were coming so it makes it all the more powerful because that you have to be quite brave and honest to admit you saw the pitfalls 
but you fell into them as well. Yeah, I think the, there was a, a moment in it when we were talking about lettuce where she gets told... Um, <laughs> You uh, should be eating romaine lettuce, not iceberg lettuce. <laughs> and I, it just stopped me in my tracks. It was just a little observation. But that's that's one of the beauties of it. And what you talk about there, Alison, is genuine... It's it's real journalism. It's it, real experiences that she's putting on the page here. And there's a, a moment when she's... There's a, a running friend of hers called Jean who has a an accident. She falls off a skateboard, I think it is, and shatters uh, her tibia in a billion places. And that's basically the end of it. So she's, she's trying to, you know rehabilitate and they get chatting um and she says uh lauren says to her we can't win without you and she says the truth is i'd rather be skinny and injured than healthy and running fast it was another moment foggy where it completely punched me in the face just reading that line a genuine line said by somebody who could have had a future in running Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The coach thing I, I thought was really fascinating because he basically skirts over the subject of bodies and what's going on with the body, what's going on with puberty, what, what's going on with the shapes of bodies and how it can be difficult for girls running and then more or less says I can't really help you with that and that's the end of that conversation as a, and there's a lot of uh, this isn't just the eye test from from Lauren Fleshman there's a lot of detailed research in here as well about how girls feel about their bodies and and how they're impacted negatively by their bodies when they are sports uh, doing sports running whatever at school and uh, some of that research uh, really staggered me as well there's there's all sorts in there i mean there's a paragraph about coaching um on page 95 of it i just want to read a bit of that to you which i find absolutely fascinating she says lauren fleshman says you don't know what you don't know fairly obvious thing and then she says my college experience certainly provided stories to learn from but it could have been far worse unlike other coaches i've heard about and who still have jobs mine didn't shame me outright so therefore the implication is she's telling us there are coaches that shame good female athletes completely she says they didn't put me on a highly restrictive diet again you're left to think that some did they didn't police any my food 
order on team trips. They didn't create a team policy that required weekly weigh-ins to control women's bodies. They didn't employ skinfold tests, didn't pinch my lower belly and inner thigh and read the number of millimetres of fat out loud in front of my teammates. They didn't talk about my weight in front of the other, the other team either. They didn't train me through an eating disorder until I broke my leg and withhold medical imaging so they could make me race. Wow, I mean, that stuff actually happens. That's what I'm left. It's kind of blown my mind. Just yet again, another moment in the book, Alison, where my mind has completely been blown by the truth that is out there, that Lauren Fleshman's getting out there in this wonderful book. But what's clever about what you just read out is the the undertow there is that, yes... There are these appalling coaches who clearly understand nothing about women and how their bodies work and will sacrifice their entire future, their ability to have children, their long-term health, just to get a few points on the board in whatever race they're in charge of. But it it's sort of slightly passive-aggressive because it there isn't. It's basically a case of coaches who aren't too bad against coaches that are blooming abysmal. There's no one really. There, there isn't like there's a cohort of excellent coaches who get it, who understand it, have done the research and know what's right for people they they all they all they all have the, the the targets they have to reach at any cost and there are there is there's a speech i think quite close to that page where one of her coaches sort of says you know the, the men the men understand you know they're honest about their objectives and what they want to achieve. I don't oh, think, the integrity speech. I don't yeah. think I don't think women yeah. really, are, and the women aren't doing what they said they do because they're all blooming becoming women and they're getting breasts and periods and their bodies are. I the reason this book literally won actually is the page before that because one or two of the judges said just having it starkly written out that during the ages of eighteen through twenty two. The fact is that underneath the skin, the male body is doing something entirely different from the female body. Expecting the same performance trajectory is not only dense, it's harmful. So you get, for boys, 18 to 22, they get their peak testosterone, maximum training capacity and robust recovery power. And she says this is when men are recruited to be soldiers. They're they're at their absolute physical peak then. And um, that's what all the data is is about this is when you expect it to happen but for a woman when she's 18 through to 22 it the body's um changing in preparation of becoming a mother doesn't mean whether you mentally want to be a mother or not that's biologically what happens to you so you you get high estrogen levels which means your body's softer you hold in more body fat and fluids you 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 just become bigger you're supposed to and that's a beautiful blossoming thing that happens to the female body and any woman that wants to run competitively is being told stop that from happening it's nature but let's stop that from happening and maybe we can stop that from happening if you eat uh, a certain sort of lettuce it's absolutely ridiculous it's almost a handmaid's tale level of ludicrousness and yet this was just standard fare for what female athletes had to go through that basic lack of understanding i mean anyone who does biology at school knows that men's bodies and women's bodies are made for different things and they just seem to forget that it it is it is appalling and then of course it all has this snowball effect that it means you will if you delay your your period bad things happen to you you might not be able to have children you'll you'll you get 
more likely to get fractures. So not only are you starving yourself, you're you're forcing your body to not get the nutrients it needs. And you have osteoporosis, which means you're more likely to snap a bone while you're training in the very race they want you to win. And you're not going to because you're going to be hurt. It's absolutely astonishing. And it's you know good for her for just laying it out. She does it so calmly. So you can hear in my voice, I'm getting quite angry. She doesn't do it like that. It's very matter of fact. It's very calm. And she has a lot of sympathy, I think, for everybody involved because it's often just because they've they, they they've inherited this way of thinking and they're carrying on with it. No one's deliberately trying to be evil. It's just that this is the way it is. We're, they're just copying the patterns set by the male athletes who, uh, yes, have more integrity because they, they, they win when they're 18 years old and the women don't. Yeah, they, um, the integrity uh, speech that the coach gives is really interesting because he basically says that, that the guys, they do what they say they're going to do. That means they're running with integrity. And then he accuses the, the girls' team of doing exactly the opposite. And actually, Lauren Fleshman doesn't even get angry when she's admonishing herself because she says she agrees with the coach. At that time, in yes. that room, yes. she agrees with the coach. And it's only later in life she looks back and thinks, oh, my goodness, how wrong was I there? But she's, she, again, she's not angry with herself because she can see how that was the accepted way of thinking. And it's going to take, you know, a huge juggernaut handbrake to change that way of thinking. And I also think that the bits in, in the book about um, pregnancy and, and after she's had the baby as well, those I find those um, elements of the book fascinating. Again, it's something that I personally obviously cannot live through. And so therefore... I am learning with every single word that Lauren Fleshman is written is writing here, Alison. Yeah, and I'm, I mean the the it was it was quite it's quite lovely. It's a bit of a naff word, but it was quite a lovely moment when we were um, we all met to decide what would win the award, and uh, we knew what the shortlist was. Everyone came to that meeting with their favourites, I suppose. But it was that it was the men in the room saying oh my god i didn't know that i just didn't know the i just didn't know and being grateful for someone just laying it out very simply but not in a um, uh not in a sort of textbooky sort of way because it is her personal story she i think a really good trick with any sort of writing is if you can make the personal universal and yes of course not every female athlete has an alcoholic father not every female athlete is american and goes through the college system not not every female athlete has the same but all women have the same biology and you can't escape that so for that to be laid out in this book does apply to all female sport actually so i think i think she's added to the debate about oh why is it that a lot of um female footballers are getting acl injuries uh, could it be? <laughs> could it be that everything that's gone into the science of sport and knee injuries has been from a male male perspective? Could it be that the boots women have been wearing were designed for male feet, not female feet? Well, this is you know she's adding to that debate that yeah the answer is probably yes, isn't it? Everything everything's geared to the male physiology. What's going to suffer? The female body will suffer. 
Well, I've heard men say those ACL injuries are down to women being weak and pathetic, not being able to kick a ball properly, oh, not right. being able to run properly. <laughs> Excellent. So I'm grateful for the deeper analysis uh, of things like this. I want to go back to the track and how well it's written because it's... One of the gorgeous things is that she just loves running so much and it does define her and, and I do, I, I admire that passion she has for it. There's a beautifully written description of her in a race where her and the coach come up with a, where a coach comes up with a game plan for her to uh, hit the front far earlier than she thought was sen sensible. But it's about, and I, and I love that there's a little phrase in there about um, even if you fail, you're not a failure. And so she accepts the game plan, the, you know, the, the plan for the race, and goes for it and wins the race. And it's just so beautifully written. Um, just from the first line of it, with exactly 600 to go, I shot out into the front like my ass was on fire. <laughs> it's just, you have this cartoon image of these flames firing out the back of her as she like hits the front. She feels like she's not going to win it with 80 metres to go. I didn't know how I would make it to the end. My legs had no pop left. The major muscle groups leaden with lactate. I was paying the price for the big early move. I felt myself recruiting my forearms, my kneecaps, any body part that could help make a final push. And when the crowd roared louder, I briefly feared I was being passed. Just do your best. The words of my parents, who were seated in the East Grandstands, came to mind. I made every quicksand step my best, and it turned out to be enough. She won it. And then there's a great little line at the end of it where she says um, that one of her teammates, a guy called Jonathan Riley, won the men's 5,000, and he told her afterwards that she had inspired him. I couldn't believe I'd inspired someone on the machine, which is what they called the machine. That's what the men's team was called. Mm. Um, and I just think that it's kind of hidden away in the middle of a chapter, but that really, it made me smile, that whole section of her adopting a game plan she thought was flawed, just going for it anyway and not worrying about failure, winning the race and then realising, being told that she's inspired a man on the, uh, the men's team, the, the machine. I just think it, it kind of sums up the story itself, the whole story of the book itself, Alison. Yeah, but it all would it all I'm glad you read that out because one of the the main things that makes a sports book an excellent one and not just a good one is being able to describe the act of sport. So as someone who regularly goes to sporting events and has to find an interesting way of describing someone who crosses from the left and then someone pokes it in at the far stick <laughs> you can't say you know you and, and, and sports writing used to be like that 30 40 50 years ago it was often just basic running crossing scoring or oh so and so started the race at the back and then overtook and you, we, we expect more so writing like that gives you um well, it's, it's enjoyable to read because it's different, but also it gives you an insight on what it actually does feel like. So you are briefly there running in that race with her. You feel you feel yourself as you're reading it, you feel yourself in a little bit short of breath and you imagine, without trying, you can imagine the weight of your limbs and to be able to sum it up in good fresh... I mean, it's fresh writing, isn't it? It makes you... I think all her descriptions of the actual running made me feel I was outside. She makes you glad you read about it. Yeah, and I can imagine in 50, 60 years' time, I think that this people will look back on this book and think, wow, was that how they used to do things? And actually, we've got another one of those books coming up in just a moment. Talk Sport 2 with William Hill. I'm Adrian Durham. Neil Foggin is with us from William Hill. Alison Rudd, uh, esteemed sports writer from The Times, is with us as well. Um, 
I have, uh, as I said, a vast collection of books on sport, and one particular section is old football books, or old sports books, actually. Um, and I love delving into them. I'm, I'm a big fan of the band XTC, and in one of their songs, Books Are Burning, there's a line where Andy Partridge, frontman of the band, genius, says... Uh, Books are a wisdom hotline from the dead back to the living. Uh, profound and deep. Love it. Um, and uh, reading uh, through uh, my soccer story, yes, they did call football soccer back in the 60s. Uh, Bobby Moore, this was the year, he wrote this the year they won the World Cup, but it was just before they won the World Cup. Um, uh, it's an extraordinary book. Uh, with some incredible uh, visionary moments in it from the great Bobby Moore. Before we get into that, let's remind ourselves of some of his great moments in a West Ham and England shirt. God only knows what I'd be without you. I used to come home from school, just dump the books, go straight, get a ball, go straight out in the road and start playing football or walk over to the park and play football. The whistle goes and West Ham United have won the FA Cup. And Bobby Moore, under a lot of pressure with the Lord quarters, more pushing that one behind for the corner. We basically grow up with football here, being the national sport. As I say, you know, one of the first things you do to anybody, you know, when they're a little baby, is if you just roll them a ball, you know, they'll try and kick it back to you. And I mean, even parents say, oh, look, you know, even she can kick it now. And the whistle has gone, West Ham have won it. West Ham have won the European Cup winners' cup. To receive the trophy from the president of the European Football Association. Just over a year's time, he might be standing on the same spot with the World Cup in his hand. You know, they can always come home from school. You know, they can always go to the park with their friends. They can pick up a ball, whether it be a tennis ball, a football, or a plastic ball, put two jackets down, and have a game of football. And really love it as much as anyone with all the best facilities in the world. Only 12 inches high, solid gold, and it means England are the world champion. It's and Even she can. Bless him. See what I mean? About 60 years ago, things were so totally different. That's, we heard that line and uh, all chuckled to ourselves, but that's how it used to be in those days. You You wouldn't have... Girls playing football, they'd be playing netball or hockey, but now it's it, it's a completely commonplace thing, it, I think, for, for girls to be playing football. It's, I don't think if you saw girls playing football in the park, you wouldn't think, well, what's going on there? It would just be a... Mm. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it, I think it would just be a normal thing. Funnily enough, in, in this uh, book, My Soccer Story by Bobby Moore, he does actually... Um, talk about bringing more women to football um he says i believe that british people uh, british football needs new thinking on the whole subject of bringing in the people i'll tell you one section of the community that is more or less debarred from football because of the scarcity of seats women the modern couple like to go places together and the days are past when their husband put on his cloth cap and set off with his mates for the football on saturday afternoons while the wife stayed at home and got the tea ready. Basically, his answer to that is, let's get more seats in stadia, which we'll come on to in a, in a moment, again, visionary. More seats in stadia, because that will attract the women who will only go to football if you're sitting down. Obviously, there's flaws in his argument, Alison, but actually, for him in 1966 to be saying, cloth caps, blokes off down to the football, those days are gone, let's bring women to football and couples to football, if you take, your back, take yourself back to those days of Steptoe and Sun, etc., I think that that's quite a remarkable thing for the England captain to say. Yeah, no, I, lo I love 
I loved hearing that. That was really sweet. Um, my 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 dad wouldn't go to football because he didn't want to leave his wife at home. You know, it's like. <laughs> That's so lovely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, but I mean, football's been through things he couldn't have seen. Um, so the Hillsborough disaster and, and the, the ramifications from that and, and uh, Italia 90, the two big things that made football feel more, the repercussions of which made football feel like people felt safer going to grounds and um, all-seater stadia do lend themselves to a more family environment where you wouldn't worry about... I mean, when I was little, I mean, I had to wait to be old enough to go to stand on the cop because it was deemed a dangerous place for a, a girl to go. And I, I don't think that's a particularly... I was brought up in a particularly sexist way. It was just, you know, worry about the safety of your child. You know, it looked, it looked scary. Why would you want to go unless you it's a bit old enough to know how to handle yourself sort of thing but I mean there are lots of reasons why you might not want to go to football now but it's not generally because you think you're going to be crushed which is a good thing and it's not generally because it will be only men in fact um, when I get off a, a tube or a, a train station and walk towards a ground the biggest the biggest change there are far more women than when I first started um, I mean I, I, li I literally could look around a stand 30, 40 years ago and not see another female face that's that's changed a lot but but, but, but the biggest change is it's um, the, the foreign voices it's a tourist att attraction now never used to be that I could go I could go 10, 15 minute walk to a Premier League ground and not hear a single local voice and I think that is uh, a bit of a worry because if people are turning up to football to a as an experience, as a package holiday, and they want to record the atmosphere and the songs, who's going to sing them if you sell too many tickets to people who are there on holiday and with their selfie sticks are not actually contributing to the music? But we've gone right off piece there. But that, yes, but he had, <laughs> but he did. He was he was far sighted enough to know that if you make the stadiums nicer, then more than just men will go. Yeah, he talks about you know the all-seater stadium making uh, the stadium better. He says, one thing stands almost completely unchanged since the days of the Depression. The local football ground luxury is a word soccer never seems to have heard of. Um, I was at Newport <laughs> against Manchester United. There was no luxury there as well. That, it was like being back in the uh, 60s, but that added to the charm of it, given, you know, last week I was at Spurs, which just Space Age Stadium, absolutely fantastic. And the contrast I still like... But I think he's right. Back in the day, most grounds were Newport County's ground, somewhat bigger than others, but there was no no hint of luxury and it. it. would have turned a lot of people off. He's just thinking of ideas to get people into stadiums. He's talking about having car parks under stadia as well so that people can drive to and from the grounds, which, again, back in the 60s probably didn't happen very much, needing places to, to park their cars. The other thing he, he does talk about, and this is the most visionary thing, he talks about this is a, t a time when... The European Cup existed, but English clubs weren't really heavily participant in it or hadn't been participant in it. Remember, Wolves had those floodlit European games against the Hungarian sides, etc. Um, Alan Hardacre, the Secretary of the Football League at the time, said that he didn't think there ever could be a European League because of the travel difficulties. The world has uh, moved on significantly. Uh, Bobby Moore says, uh, I can't help thinking what a great boost for the game. A European club league would be a competition guaranteeing the top clubs of five or six countries a healthy number of foreign matches 
in a season. That's basically him foretelling, Foggy, the Champions League happening. It's just mind-boggling, isn't it, at the time? And the fact about travel, and you mm. look at now, no one thinks of it. And when you look at American sport, they just go from one side of the country to the other. It's just, yeah. And then after the, the away fixture the next day. Yeah, it's just part of sport, isn't it, now? You <laughs> yeah. just, we travel. I think it is. Uh, looking back at all those books just helps me sort of focus on how things used to be uh, and maybe helps me tolerate some flaws in the current game as well compared to how things used to be. Um, Neil, talk to us about uh, 2024, the sports books so far. What's been entered already? What's coming soon? We are up and running. Um, we've had a good start for January. January is normally a quiet month, but we've had um, a few books in. We've got subjects like women's football, Irish boxing, politics and American sport, Moscow Olympic thriller, um, a football autobiography, and we've also got racing covered. But we need get if your book's out or been out since the second of September last year, get it entered now. And is there any guidance, Alison, that you could give anybody who's uh, writing a book or a sports book or possibly thinking of entering a sports book? Don't don't write to try and win it, but have the aspiration to do so. They, what one reason I'm delighted to be associated with the award is I genuinely believe it has helped improve the standards of sports writing just across the board and anyone who now thinks about writing a sports book their ambition is to win this award because it's it's the next stage in being considered a good writer because there used to be and, and it probably still is in some quarters a bit of snobbery about if you're a sports writer are you really a good writer and this award proves you can know your sport and be a good writer as well. So, but but if you if you try too hard and think there's a formula, oh, you know, they, they, for, for once there was a good female representation in 2023. We all have to make sure that it's about women. It has to be about women. It has to be a women's story. It doesn't. It doesn't. That was coincidence. And it's very. It was good. Long overdue because there are very few women write about sport and very few books about women's sport get submitted long may that continue that doesn't mean it's you have to copy what went the year before to win be be true to yourself and if you love something about sport or sport itself or it's affected you and you've become who you are for it then that that's the truth of that story will be what means you might get considered because um i think what all the shortlisted books had in common in 2023 was um a sort of rawness and honesty and that explored just how deep you have to go to be successful in sport. Neil Foggin from William Hill, thank you very much for joining us. You'll be back with us again, I'm sure. Yes. Alison Rhodes from The Times, thank you very much. Pleasure. This is the Sports Book Club on TalkSport 2 with William Hill. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.